this morning in your Bibles, the book of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we'll pick up in our series that we've been working through here on worldliness and really um, loving God most. This morning we come to this third of three sins, the way the Bible defines the world. Um, Lust the eyes, lust the flesh, and then this morning, the pride of life. It is always a terrifying thing to preach on humility or pride um, because it just feels so ever-present in the heart, uh, in the way we think, in the way we operate. Uh, And yet I believe this morning that this can really point us to hope and freedom, deliverance, in the power of the gospel in a profound way. And so 1 John chapter 2, let me read verses 15 and 16, and then we'll start our journey together this morning. Uh, John writing says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. A number of years ago, there was a child raised in an abusive home, and in that particular home, the uh, abuse took took lots of forms, but one of those physically was starving the child. And they would withhold food from the child, and when the child finally had food to eat, it was never enough. It was not filling. uh, It was not nutritious. And so when the child was finally rescued from this home, uh, due to some uh, good neighbors who saw what was going on and reported uh, this abuse, and the child was rescued and parental rights were severed, the child went into foster care system and eventually uh, was brought into a loving home uh, ahead of adoption. And as this uh, little boy was in this home, uh, elementary school age, one night the, the parents heard a noise and they went and they found him in the kitchen. And he was gorging himself on anything he could find in the refrigerator. Uh, obviously uncooked food, anything um, from lunch meats to uh, fruits. He had. They saw that he had started in the pantry with uncooked potatoes, um, didn't just take one or two bites, but had consumed potatoes, just anything to gorge himself. And, and so they, they weren't exactly sure how to respond. And so there was, uh, they tried to correct, tried to instruct and put him back into bed. And this pattern kept repeating itself. And he could not fathom that he was in a safe space now where he'd always be fed. He could not process that reality. It was so different from his reality. His greatest dreams were to not be hungry again. And after several weeks of this and trying different methods, uh, the mother and father kind of at the end of their their rope, just in the sense of we don't know what else to do, um, tried a new tactic. And so they waited and they knew that he would wait until he thought they were asleep and sneak in. Uh, Some people recommended to chain the... Uh, to put a, actually put a lock on the, the pantry doors and the refrigerator. Um, they, they didn't feel like that's what they should do. And so they set an alarm and they woke up in the middle of the night, uh, knowing they would get there before he did. And they just prepared another meal, turned off all the lights and waited for him. 
And he came toddling down the hall, sneaking, tiptoeing, comes in the kitchen, opens the refrigerator door in the light of the refrigerator. He then illuminates the kitchen and he sees all this food prepared and his mom and dad sitting there. And he just didn't know what to do. And they told him, we will meet you every night as long as it takes so that you know in our home you will always be fed and we would rather eat with you than you have to sneak it around us. We're with you. We love you. And it was from that point forward for the first time he began to call them mom and dad. His greatest dreams were just to eat. (laughs) He could not even fathom that someone would love him and care for him and nourish him. I want you to begin thinking and understanding that part of the way pride of life works, the sin, and we're going to define it in a moment, and we'll unpack it, but I already want your hearts going this direction. Everything that you and I think will make us happy here, we're dreaming too small. We are imagining too little because our Father has so much more for us. And pride of life robs us of the glorious reality that God actually has for us in relationship with him. And so we want to dig in and understand exactly what is going on here. Um, And so he tells us all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. You see already there kind of this strange lingo, pride and possessions. And and I think that can actually help us uh, because if we deep dive a little bit more... Depending on what translation you may even have this morning, what version you have this morning, it will actually define or translate this Greek phrasing differently. The Christian Standard Bible, it's a great translation, great version. It will say pride in one's possessions. Uh, The the NASB, New American Standard Bible, again, another good, really good uh, translation or version, boastful pride of life. Uh, And so it, it seems to exaggerate it by saying a boastful Pride of life, and we would typically think of boasting and pride uh, as so synonymous, why this feels repetitive. Um, And then the ESV that I'm using this morning and the King James will translate it as pride of life. Again, two really good translations. I don't really care what version you have this morning. I just want to point out, when you have something like this, this is not a, a contest who's gotten it right. All of these are translated by scholars and people who really want to communicate what the word is saying, what the phrase is saying, because they're wanting us to understand exactly what the Bible is. They're not trying to transliterate it. They're trying to give it to us. And yet we have this range. Why do we have that range? We have that range because linguistics is not just one plus one equals two. It just isn't. Uh, And anyone in this room that has any familiarity with another language, even if all you did was take it like I did a couple of years way back in middle school, and then not till we do Greek and Hebrew later in in seminary, um, you understand that seldom do we have a one for one. And And so how do we do this? So we look at context and we try to translate even as we are putting this into our language. And that's what they're doing. And the fact that you have this this breadth, this semantic range is actually helpful for us in defining it. It gives me a, a good springboard to help us to begin to think through it. The first one there is this, is this question, is it your life or is it possessions? Christian Standard Bible says pride in one's possessions. And, and quite honestly, the first 
uh, several years of the ESV, it used that same phrasing. So is it pride in your possessions? But then the NASB says pride of life, and the ESV and King James say pride of life. Well, if you just look over in your Bibles, first John, if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, 1 John chapter 3, and if you go down to verse 17, you have an interesting phrase here. It says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We understand this context. You see someone, they, they are hungry or they really lack clothing. You have those goods, so you give them those goods to meet their need. That word is the same word. So the same word that's being translated as life is translated as goods just a chapter later that the CSB is translating as possessions. It's frankly a much more consistent way of translating if they were to say possessions. And originally the ESV did that. And then as they've developed other versions of the ESV, and they don't tell you like, here's this one, here's this one, here's this one. But as it's progressed, they're always tweaking, always trying to work on it. They've moved away from possessions back to life. Well, why translate it one time possessions? It's very clear in chapter 3, it's your goods, your stuff. In chapter 2, it seems like it must be more than that. We can see how it would connect to the first two if we make it about possessions. Lust of the eyes. These are literally physical things you can see. You can grab. You can hold. The desires are the lust of the flesh. It's about meeting desires you physically experience desire for food desire for sex desire for sleep and so we have these drives and so if we translate it as possessions it definitely seems to flow when we're talking about the world we're talking about the physicality of the world the temporal nature of this world and so an emphasis on possessions would flow really nicely and it is in part that it is the stuff we touch we handle some of the aspect of the pride of life is the stuff of this world. But it's more than that. The, the, the weakness of only talking about it as possessions is it hinders a greater way of understanding pride. Things like the fact that we can be proud about our relationships. We can be proud about our status. We can be proud about our ambition, our respect, and so on. We understand why you would say possessions. Because we even understand in our, in our culture, uh, we have a phrase like, you are what you eat, right? Um, I'm a car guy, so growing up, I, I refused to call it by the Italian you know, car manufacturer, or, or is it Belgium, whatever. I don't really care. I think of it as Mopar, right? So Chrysler. So either you were a Ford, Chevy, or Mopar guy. Um, you, you might go out for lunch today, and uh, you might go eat some Chinese food, or you might have... Mexican food, and, and that's the way you think about it. You're either a northerner or a westerner or a southerner. You're a husband or a wife. You're single or married. You're a dad or mom. You're a grandparent. You're sitting in this room. We have everything from, from, from carpenters. You, know, you might have doctors. You might have scientists in the room. You might have nurses, lawyers, and so on. You, you have mechanics. You, you, you have retirees, and we tend to think about our life and even define our lives by what we do or what we own, what we have. It's stuff. And so one of the ways it's important to think about pride of life is about things. But it is limited, and we would want to go broader than that. And that's why it's helpful when these others reference it as pride of life. 
this redundancy in the NASB, the boastful pride of life, while the ESV and KGV are contented to say pride of life. They're again attempting to capture the semantic range of it. It goes beyond just a mental state of it, pride of life, this internal sense of satisfaction, but extends to an outworking of the pride of its, itself. It's a controlling influence in the way people are relating to God and others about life. And so pride of life has to do about here, but it also has to do with the way you think. It has to do with the way you relate to things around you and others around you. It's in you and it oozes out of you. Proud people, even if they recognize they're proud, rarely, seldom, because of the blind spots of it, do they perceive their pride the way everyone else around them perceives how proud they are. So is there other places we could go to maybe zoom in a little bit tighter and understand a little bit better? And I think we can. I think we can go to the same places we went last week, and that's to the garden and to the temptation of Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to go back to Genesis 3, let's just read that and, and unpack it a little bit in Eve. Because right from the beginning, in uh, Eve's sin there by taking the fruit, we have these three manifestations of, the, of worldliness and a love of the world. Lost the eyes, lost the flesh, and pride of life. Genesis chapter 3, we find the story recorded for us in verses 1 through 6. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. A couple truths about the pride of life that are important for us here. First of all, she is rejecting her current condition. She thinks of her situation as a cage, as some kind of prison. I don't want to be here. This is not ultimately satisfying to me. God is trying to deny me a positional change. He has brought me second. My husband was created before me. He's brought me to my husband. I love him. I love God, but I'm kind of stuck. And I want out of this. I want more from me than what God wants for me is the thinking. The temptation here of Satan is to transcend the position that God has put her in. The attractiveness is to better herself, to go beyond. We see this lie so in so many ways in our culture. But we should already be asking, how is this lie in my life? What God has for me, where he has put me, where he has placed me, I want more than that. It's not good. It's not loving. It's constraining. The psalmist, Psalm 139, David finds himself with that kind of thinking when he describes God hemming him in before and behind, his hand being on him. He can't run from God. The language is not one of comfort in that moment. Uh, in Psalm 139, initially, it is one of complaint. 
There's this mindset for Eve that she wants to reject where God has put her. Secondarily, it's this quest for more. It's to know like God knows. It's to see as God sees. And so the outworking of that would be what? If I can know as God knows and if I can see as God sees, it's so that I can also do what? I can rule like God rules. I now have power. And so my ambition in this moment is for power. It's for control. She sees here as a part of the great divide between her and her creator, knowledge. If I knew more, I'd be like him. That's the lie the serpent is selling her, and that is exactly what she's believing. You see this play out even when she takes the lead. Even after her sinfulness of, of taking the fruit, and her eyes are immediately opened. She knows right then, and she takes control and feeds it to her husband. Adam, all kinds of issues there. All kinds of horrible leadership, cowardly, unloving selfishness. But it is a mindset that says, I now know like God, and I want you to know like God also. Thirdly, thirdly, God's guidelines are prison bars, not arms of love. God has, has surrounded her with protection. He said, this is the garden. This has everything you're ever going to need or want. Here's the tree of life. You can eat this and never die. You're not going to get sick. You're safe here. Nothing can hurt you here. You are safe in your husband's love. You are safe in my love. We know had she remained, there would be flourishing. There would be fruitfulness. There would be children born without pain. There, there, there would be work, but it's good work uh, with, without blood and tears, thorns and thistles. It would have been wonderful and delightful. And instead of interpreting that as love, she interprets it as a prison. That God is somehow unkind. That he is somehow set against her. He does not want what's best for her. No one knows what's best for her but her and her mindset. Do you ever think that way? Do you ever think that way about yourself? No one knows me better than me. And the reality is God actually knows you better than you. And why does that matter? Because then when we actually are on journeys of self-awareness and, and figure out who we are and how we think, why do I do the things I do? Why do I think the way I think? How do I operate this way? Why do I operate this? Then you can go back to the authority of the word, take your life, pour your life, your thinking, your actions, your behavior through the word. Whatever the word says about us is who we are. We are known by God. She thinks in this moment, no one knows what I need, what I want more than me. I can control it. And so God's boundaries is a prison, not love. I think we are prone to operate that way all the time. So we can see pride of life from Eve, but then we can also see it from the temptation of Christ. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, we find that encounter between Jesus and Satan right at the outset, right before he begins his official public unveiling of his ministry. Matthew chapter 4 says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There are three times in the life of Christ that God the Father speaks from heaven about Jesus. Three times. 
First time he's at his baptism. God says this, a quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The second time is at his transfiguration. He says again, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The third time is in the temple during the Passion Week. God says this in John 12, 28 through 30. Father, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, now not mine. Now, how does that tie into this temptation? They all have something significant in common. They were bold declarations about the identity of Jesus. God was affirming who he was and his approval of him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I love him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is my son. I will glorify my name through him. This is who he is. If there's any question about who he is, this is who he is. I love him. He has glorified me, and he will continue to glorify me. He is safe and secure in his identity. While everyone else said, who is he? He's the son of a carpenter. Uh, he is not a leader we should listen to, follow, not a teacher we should listen to. He is a nobody. Why should we pay any attention to him? He is from Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Then three times God says, no, this is who he is. Satan's temptation surrounding the pride of life was you seize this moment to prove who you are. You seek validation this way. Children do this all the time because they're children. And, and so we can pick on kids. They're in children's church. They go and they pluck weeds for their mamas, right? At the end of the day, they're dandelions. Um, we've all seen the little sticky fist holding wilted flowers. Dandelions, right? Here. Now, maybe this has happened. I've never seen a child do that. That there isn't a part of that child that is desperately wanting something from mama at that moment, aren't they? What are they wanting from mama? They're wanting joy, delight, gratitude. They want mama to throw their arms around them. This is so beautiful. They come in two hours later. They're looking in the kitchen. What are they looking to see? Are my little wilted flowers in a little vase with water? Even though mama knows they ain't making it. They're looking and questing in those moments for some affirmation, I'm safe and secure in your love. I'm not judging those kids. We are all hardwired with a desperate longing. Don't rebuke your child if they bring you wealth of flowers. Why are you questing after an identity crisis moment? I already love you. Like, you're a loser. You need counseling, right? Like, that's not how you respond. Embrace them, love them, delight in that moment. Those are wonderful moments. They eventually age out of them. So enjoy it. Delight in it. These are wonderful moments. The problem is we all do the same thing as adults, don't we? Sometimes we do things, we are generous with things, we are generous with comments, we say things, and, and we want the person, even on some level, we want them to feel good, but there's a part of us, at times we do things because we're wanting some affirmation, aren't we? We want some acceptance because we are hardwired longing for it. And the point of the sermon is, like, I'm not rebuking you. I'm just telling you that part of the temptation from Satan to Jesus was seize that affirmation now. Get it now. 
Quest for it now. Be satisfied now. Be affirmed now. Be celebrated now. But before there was ever going to be the crown, there had to be the cross. The seeds that Satan is sowing in this moment are intended to come to fruition years later when Jesus is in the garden saying, "Take, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And in that horrific moment when the father turns his face away from the son... The utter hell on earth of that moment. Because that's what that was. The son experiencing the rejection and coldness of the father so that you and I don't ever have to experience that. And the pride of life, the temptation is I can find acceptance, fulfillment, happiness, ultimately all of this right now. And so the temptation was for Jesus to compel the Father to prove his identity. That's the temptation. Prove my value. Act outside of your timetable, and in that moment, make it all about me and not the plan. Jesus understood immediately that that was the test. He grasped that. There was no no mystery And that's why Jesus understood that the real accusation in this moment of pride of life is the same as Eve in the garden, and it's this. God is not actually on mission for you at all. He's not on your side. You are simply a pawn in the game for him to sacrifice, do away with, and he doesn't care. He's an unkind God who doesn't really love you, who doesn't really accept you, who doesn't really care for you, who really isn't for you, And so, you know what? You need to be for you, or for Jesus, you need to prove it. That's why Jesus' response to Satan is so telling. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is being tested? Not his power, his love. He says, we're not going to do that. I'm not playing that game. Pride of life, then, is this. Pride of life is an embracing of a life here, that is set on itself as the God of your own happiness. I will be on mission to find fulfillment and happiness here. And I'm going to do what it takes to get it within whatever boundaries I'm going to set. And so you may be here this morning, you may be operating within what you are thinking of as biblical boundaries. Well, I'm not violating, I'm not willing to violate the Ten Commandments to do it. I'm not willing to violate this commitment to do it. I'm not willing to break this covenant to do it. But within that box, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to quest for happiness for me. I will be satisfied here. I will be satisfied now. I will be satisfied my way. In my timetable, I think one of the most stunning books of the Bible is Jeremiah. Uh, you know, frequent, frequently or famously called the weeping prophet, when he begins his ministry and God's saying, I chose you when you were in your mother's womb to be a prophet. Um, nobody's going to listen to you. Uh, you're going to suffer greatly, so don't get married and don't have kids. Okay, so I'm not going to have companionship. I'm not going to have children. People are not going to listen to me. In other words, I'm going to have an ineffective ministry life. And ultimately, I'm going to die. Hip, hip, hooray. Where on earth do you find any sense of satisfaction, happiness, or delight in that? 
And you see Jeremiah, though, embracing what God has for him. And Jeremiah experiences just horrible things throughout his life. And it's not just Jeremiah. You have Jesus looking at the disciples and saying, yeah, you're, you're going to die. And you're a little bit like, that seems a little flippant. Like, I'm going to die? Here's the keys of the kingdom. By the way, you're going to die. We have all this. If Moses, he's ambitious. Let me, take, let me lead the people to freedom. Well, before you do that, you're going to go spend 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, leading a bunch of sheep. And you think you're getting an upgrade when it turns into people, but it's actually a downgrade. Because sheep, one bass sounds like another. People, they can actually put words to their complaints. Now you've got to deal with all these people, Moses. Like, you start reading the Bible, and you're a little bit like, is anybody happy? And yes, there are. <laughs> but we can easily see the temptation to make my life here, the God of my joy, my desire, my ambition of what I want. And so the big idea this morning then is actually this. Setting our ambition on what God has for us will take the shine off of anything our pride could imagine for us. I want us to know this morning that this whole concept when we're being told don't love the world and we've already, we've already spent enough time in this to know that if you've come to Jesus, you've actually already rejected the love of the world. And so we're talking about part of this sanctification process of becoming more and more and more like Christ, that lifelong process of relinquishing more and more and more a love of the world. And so we want to, on one side, we say positionally, people who have gotten saved have, have said, I'm, I'm going to have the love of the Father. Love of God in me. I'm responding to his love for me but also recognizing I'm on this journey and that didn't just kill everything in my life and I still have the flesh and I still live in this fallen world and we still have Satan who is constructing a world to appeal to all of these lusts. And so I begin to understand the more I love God, if I put my focus there, I'm actually not going to have to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what are the bad things that I shouldn't be loving because my heart will be so consumed here. And so I would say it to us again this morning, when we think about pride of life, it's all about finding my happiness here in the here and now and making that the God of my life, that if you will set your ambition on what God has for you, if you will chase what he has for you, if you will make that the passion pursuit, Colossians 3, setting your affections on things above, if you will chase hard after deepening your love for God, the love of the world will, will drive away. It will push it out. So make this your chase. And so that's what we want to understand this morning, that if we would set our ambition on what God has for us, It'll take the shine off of it. It'll make it dull. It'll make it no more something we want, no matter what we can imagine for it. And so I, let's understand a little bit, though, in our lives, right? So how do we see this flesh out? This is where we get to step on toes. And I tell you this again, I, I don't ever step on your toes without very sore toes already, right? So we're in it together. I, I'm preaching on pride, <laughs> You pray I don't get hit by lightning, right? So um, this is hard. This is, this is tough. But we can see it in three scriptural examples. How do I discern it in my life? First of all, it's when we have a higher view of who we are. Second Kings chapter 5, um, 
I love the story of Naaman, right? Naaman is a Syrian general, S-Y, not A-S-S-Y, not Assyrian, Syrian. Uh, they were more powerful than Israel at this time. They were doing these incursions. They would do invasions. They would come in into the land of Israel, and they would kill a bunch of people, and they would take away slaves. So this guy is the head general. Um, he is a masterful general as well as an advisor to the king. So this guy is wealthy. He's powerful. He's strategic. He, he's, he's all the things, right? He, if, you, if you think back, if you, he's the Colin Powell of his day, right? Like the guy that we're all like, we kind of really wish he became president, you know, but because he's integrity, trustworthy, um, uh, a general, that's, that's like the guy to guy Naaman is. So that kind of hero figure. And so he has though leprosy. And so he's dying and it's a beautiful symbolism because leprosy looked like death on the outside. And it was a kind of, in Naaman's way of exampling Though you, your outside is perishing, it's really just a sign of your inwards already dead, right? Spiritually, you're dead. And now you look dead. And so this little servant girl, I, my hero evangelist in the Bible, because her parents have probably been killed and she's a slave in the household of Naaman. She goes, well, I actually know a guy where I'm from, a prophet, and he can heal you. That's courage and that's love. Because I'd have been like, this joker killed my parents. At least I get to grow up in his house and watch him die slowly. But not this girl. She's like, I know a guy that can heal you. So Naaman treks back, finds the prophet. The prophet won't even see him, won't even grant him an audience. And so he's like, nope, I'm not, I don't have time. Go dip in the Jordan seven times. Jordan's this muddy little creek. And the guy's like, you, I am not doing that. I am a highly respected man. I am a military leader. I'm a political counselor. I am married. I'm not going and bathing. He's doing that just to mock me and ridicule me. I will not do it. And his pride is of such a nature that he is unwilling to do it. He is so desperate for help that he's gone to the people they conquer and asked for help but his pride in this moment is going to prevent him from any kind of healing. Why? Because his focus is on who he thinks he is. And he has this view of himself that at this moment, at that moment in the story, in his pride, thinks this. I might need other people's help. But there's nobody actually smart enough, kind enough, wise enough to actually be able to help me. I'm the guy the king calls for help. Who do I ask for help? And he has this massive view of who he is. Naaman was willing to earn healing, he was willing to pay for healing. What he was not willing to do was be humbled for healing. The pride of life here is saying, I deserve better than this because of who I am. Now, have you ever thought that? I deserve better than what I'm getting because of who I am. Now, rabbit trail... 
I always have to be very careful here, very clear here. If you're in a situation where someone is sinfully abusing you or treating you, mistreating you, I want to be very clear with you. I'm just going to pause in the moment here and say this. This is not actually about you in that moment. Do you deserve better? This is about the fact that you're creating the image of God and nobody on this planet has the right to sinfully abuse you or hurt you. That violates the just nature of God, and he is for you, and so will every other godly authority in your life will be for you. Okay, that's not a pride of life matter. Then there's a complexity there that I can't unpack in a sermon this morning. But I have to give enough pause because I live in a world, we live in a broken world where people experience those things. That if you're sitting there, it's like, I'm not sure, Steve, what I should do in this situation. I don't, because I don't know if this is pride or if I'm being mistreated in such a way that I need to do something different. I can't unpack all that complexity. Can I just beg you to come to me then? And let's have a conversation. Just, just, just I'm begging you and I make you this promise. If I don't have a clue of what to say to you, I will be with you until we find somebody that can help you. Okay, But you take that complexity situation aside that, that I, I wish I could just take another three sermons to talk about that. But have you ever operated in a way and in a mindset where you're just like, I just deserve better than this. And God then is wrong about what he's letting happen to me or what he is sovereignly have happening to me because I deserve better than this, God. Naaman's pride is I shouldn't have to get healing through humility. He has a higher view of who he is. Second one, I think we can have a higher view of what we've done. Luke 18, 18 through 30, records the story of the rich young ruler. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in Luke 18, 18 through 30, we have the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And what do I need to do to get to heaven? Uh, Jesus, you know, keep the law. I've done that. I've kept all the laws from my youth. What an arrogant, arrogant statement. No, he hasn't. But yes, I, I, I have. And I want to use my obedience, the things I've done, as a demonstration of what I deserve. In other words, I have put enough into the bank that I deserve God to write me a heaven check. I've done my devotions enough. I deserve a peaceful life. I've done the hard work. I deserve God to flatten the mountains and raise the valleys and make straight my paths. I've done, uh, I've been to church enough. I deserve this. I've prayed enough. I deserve this. I've been faithful enough. I deserve this. I've served God enough. I've done this. I've rejected uh, all these other things I could do. I deserve this. I don't eat too much. I don't drink too much. I exercise enough. I read my Bible enough. I'm faithful enough in, in, in my relationships. I'm honest with my dealings. I, I serve faithfully in ministries. I go to work every day and I work my hardest. I don't steal from my poor. I deserve this. I view the things I've done as earning from God. This is the rich young ruler mindset. His arrogance is as he has made this world and his life the God of his happiness, he thinks God is someone you bargain with. I can control how God deals with me by the way I deal with life. Can I just tell you, that is at the very core of all idolatry. 
Why did they have these massive sacrifices and parties and orgies and all these weird things? Because they had this mindset, if the gods and the pantheon see us doing this, they'll get excited that we're doing this and they will reward us. And it's the same way for so many Christians. I've done X, I deserve Y. A plus B equals C. We have this high view of all the things we've accomplished. So Jesus, guess what the answer is again? Humility. It really is. So all you have, follow me. So I'm going to lose my position. I'm going to lose my power. I'm going to lose my influence. And I'm going to be known as a guy that falls around this Jewish carpenter that everybody else is hating on. And the rich young ruler says, no. I will not sacrifice and humble myself to receive healing. Just like Naaman at that moment in the story. No. It's too much I'm being asked to give up. He sees the things that he has accomplished as having real value, and Jesus saw it as valueless. His pride of life demanded better treatment, and he knew what he deserved. I know what I deserve. God's wrong about what I've done. Do you think that way? God is wrong about who I am, and God is wrong about what I've done. And I think it culminates in a higher view of what I deserve. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, has suffered a lot of things. There had been a famine in the land of Israel, so that it led them to flee north to Moab. They weren't supposed to. They weren't supposed to leave the land. The famine was clearly not so bad that you had to leave the land because a whole lot of other people didn't leave the land. She and her husband and their sons made a bad call. A sinful call, a disobedient call, and they fled away to Moab. They get to Moab, and their sons marry Moabite wives. The, her husband and her sons are sinful in a way that God judges them, and he punishes them with death. And so here she is now, a widow, in a foreign land with two uh, Moabite daughter-in-laws. She's like, this is miserable. I got nothing. I got nothing, and I don't deserve it. All I'm trying to do is what I'm supposed to be doing. God wants to use this in his plan, and she can't see it. What, how should she have responded? She should have responded with repentance. She should have humbled herself and said, we were sinful. We violated what God told us to do. We suffered the consequences of our sin. We're going to humble ourselves I'm going to repent of my sin, and I'm going to follow God. Confession, repentance. We start to suffer the consequences of our sinful decisions or just of living in a sin-fallen world, it should drive us back to Christ. Even if it's something that just even feels like an accident. So you might, uh, you might remember the moment when they asked Jesus, what about all these guys at the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Weren't they worse sinners than we are? And Jesus basically looks and says, that that's he doesn't even address was this God's punishment or not he just addresses it like it was an accident and he says your response to sudden tragedy to sudden consequences should be to consider your own spiritual condition you should be asking but where do I stand before God so if an accident suddenly happened to me what where am I with God in other words when tragedy happens, it should instill humility, not arrogance and a presumption of, well, they suffered that way because of some sin that they did. 
We are so quick to do this in Christian circles and in churches. We see a tragedy. We see a natural disaster. Uh, we see things happen. Somebody gets a disease. Somebody has a diagnosis. We say, oh, man, God must be judging them. And the reality is there are times consequences. So there's no way around that. But what should cause you to respond is not an arrogance about them. It should cause you and I to respond with a humble introspection about us. That's not her response, though. Ruth chapter 1, she says this. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara is bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? God is wrong about what I deserve. Now, I don't know about you, but I have thought and felt all three of those. A higher perspective of who I am. A self-righteous perspective about what I've done. An arrogant perspective about what I deserve. This is pride of life. Now, what do we do with it then? How in the world do we process through this in our lives and start to go the other direction? Well, I think we can effectively fight against the pride of life. And I think the very first way is to remember that the gospel calls us to humility. Luke chapter 9, Jesus says this, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And that phrase there, deny himself, doesn't sound, that sound a lot like a rejection of who you think you are and what you think you've done and what you think you deserve? Let him deny himself, take up his cross Daily. Every day. And follow me. People wear these little cross necklaces, and, or sometimes big cross necklaces. Cross here, whatever. Wonderful. I don't, I don't judge at all. Get a cross tattoo. I don't, I don't care. Just be reminded the cross is a symbol of death. And it's a reminder of death to you because there was death for you. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There is so much humility packed into that one verse. Self-denial, death, and submission and following. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Naaman is confronted by his servants. And really, they can't even, they don't understand. Like if there's a chance this would heal you, why would you ever let your pride get in the way? And there comes this glorious moment where Naaman Gets off his donkey, and he humbles himself. He denies himself. And in his physically dying body, he takes his spiritually dead self into the water 
which is a symbol of the grave. And he begins to dip. Seven times because it's the number of perfection. None of us know. Did he come up sparkling on the first dip? Was it the seventh dip or was it progression? We don't know. We do know this. By the time he come up the seventh time with water running off of him, catch the symbolism here. The Bible says that his skin was like that of a newborn baby. Because on the outside, it was now reflective of what was true on the inside. When you and I come to Jesus, it is this humbling moment. You see, it is a recognition of who I really am, a broken sinner. What I've really done, sinful things all about me, and what I really deserve, judgment and death. And it's a recognition in this moment, I can't save me. I can't fix this. I can't, and yet I desperately need healing. And so like Naaman, I'm coming, and I'm humbling myself before God, and say, God, rescue me. And he does. He gloriously does. He looks at you, and he forgives you. And he makes you his, and he washes you clean. The gospel calls us to humility. And there is a daily progression of death and following. We don't just need the gospel for that conversion moment. We need the gospel for everyday life. And so the first response to this pride of life, a higher view of who I am and what I've done and what I deserve, is a response to think about no, who I am and what I have done and what I really deserve is sin, wickedness, and judgment. And what he's given me is righteousness and love and forgiveness. Remembering that every day and embracing the gospel reality every day is the first and primary way to effectively fight against pride of life. The second one, though, is it's found in God's ambition for us. In the pride of life, we have to understand that the conflict surrounds our failure to rightly view ourselves and God. The answer to pride of life, then, is what? A confidence and trust in who God is. That's how Jesus responds to Satan. He doesn't respond to Satan with all these declarations about who he is. He responds to Satan with all these declarations about who the Father is. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We can see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul contrasts what his life was like prior to his salvation and the ambition of it with who he is now. He says it this way in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But he had a lot of gain, just to be very clear. He's a rising star. He is a Pharisee among the Pharisees. He's got it all together. He had been taught at the feet of Gamaliel. That's like saying, I went to Harvard and I got the best degrees. And I graduated uh, magna cum laude. And, and everybody knows I'm the next guy and I'm going to arrive. He says, I had all this gain, and he counts it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings because like him, becoming like him in his death. The Greek doesn't make you understand the Bible, but sometimes it can make a black and white TV color HD TV. First of all, the word rubbish there is the crassest Greek word for poop. It just is. It isn't trash. It isn't, as the British would say, take out the rubbish bin. The King James calls it dung. That's what it is. It's not good fertilizer. It's poop. And he says, all that I gained, everything is that. And then later, the word that he uses that I may know him, it's that I may epigonosco him. It's an experiential knowledge. It's not a head knowledge. It's I've lived it. You, you might be one of those people who say, I've never been in a car wreck. I don't ever want to be in a car wreck. I'm here to tell you, I've been in a car wreck. No, you don't. You don't want to be in one. I've been there. I epigonosco not want to be in a car wreck. If you haven't experienced it, you just mentally know. You can mentally know with all the sincerity of your heart, and it's not the same as someone who has experienced it. Just isn't. And Paul says, I want to know him, and I want to know him personally, intimately. And you know what I really want to know? I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be lifted from death to life. That's my new ambition. My ambition is no longer happiness here. My ambition is no longer stuff here. My ambition is no more respect here. My ambition is to be raised from here and experience the love, acceptance, and power of Jesus Christ. That kind of love is what will deliver us from pride of life. Now, if I had preached that in the church I grew up in, I'd have had to pause for like 30 seconds because of the amens. But that's okay. I see the sincerity of your attention. What if the reality is when you and I are beginning to run into these moments where we are thinking things like what we dream of, what we're setting our ambitions on, what if God has so much more for us than what we think will make us happy here? What if God, what if, what if we are imagining too small? What if we're dreaming too tiny? What if, if you're anything like me, you're too scared to dream big? Because you're afraid of the discouragement that comes when you feel like it's not fulfilled. What does God want for us, though? I love this verse in Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When you think things like, I hate where I am in my current place, can I encourage you, think of a moment where Christ could have hated where he was and see how he responds. 
If you're in a moment where you're like, man, I just feel like I can never be happier. I can't be joy-filled. This world is what I've got to suddenly start manipulating, controlling to make me happy, to make me fulfilled. My ambition is here. I've got to keep this all together. Jesus is in this moment in the garden where he isn't going to, by choice, he has is, is voluntarily restrained the use of his certain divine attributes like omnipotence and omniscience. He could have called a thousand angels, 10,000 angels to come down and deliver him, but he refused to do it. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. I tell you that because Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be in the soul-crushing prison of a moment. And make your prayer his prayer. God, give me the strength I do not have. Grant me the wisdom I do not have. God, I am too weak and I am stumbling and I'm failing. I'm so out of breath with running the race of faith. I feel like I'm going to start puking. Oh, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. As sweat of blood runs down from him and he turns his heart back to who the father really is and he begins to be reminded again and again and again and we have to remind our hearts again and again and again we have a God who can empower us by the resurrection power of Jesus to be steadfast, to be immovable and to be abounding in the work of the Lord. When you think I am in a prison of God's restriction, ask how God will absolutely get fruit from this position through endurance, steadfast, and immovability. When you think I'd be happier, I'd be happier if I was more, had more, went farther. Consider the God of the universe calling us to be his servants. God, I would just, if I could just have more respect, more accolade, more whatever. Let your mind drift and let your imagination grow to what it's like to see the God of the universe on his knees with his robes wet from washing the feet of people. And hear his words. If you have been served this way, then you are called to serve. And experience the reality that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who he is. And you will not have to listen very hard to hear me scream from the crowd of onlookers, yes, he is, bow to him. Are you enraptured with here? Are you defeated by the ambitions of here? Or do you find a heart that is so affected by the love of God, so overwhelmed with his ambition for you to make you his son and his daughter, a joint heir to rescue you from the slums making mud pies to building a beautiful city in the sky that will live in with him and rule with him. Set your ambition on what God has for you. And that'll take the shine off of anything your pride could imagine for you.